So the question is, how do you handle correction? Somebody comes in and says, hey, you're doing something wrong, and they come in to correct you. How do you handle that kind of correction? Typically, there's going to be two general ways to respond to that kind of correction. Uh, one way is to receive it well, to, to, to say, there's something I can learn from this, and I'm going to embrace this, and I'm going to learn something from this and apply it to my life, and I'm going to get better. That's one way to respond to correction. Another way to respond to correction is to push back against it, to reject it, to become stubborn and, and refuse to listen, refuse to hear, you refuse to learn anything from that correction. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I've done both of those in my life. In fact, there was a time several years ago, uh, I was working for the state patrol. And as you can imagine, if you work for the state patrol, um, what you do has to be done in certain ways. It has to be done in the right order and the right processes and the right details. Because if you miss something, then chances are it's going to be messed up down the road. So there was one time where I made a, a couple of mistakes. And somebody uh, who wasn't my supervisor, was another supervisor, comes in and says, Kevin, can I talk to you? And, and I'm like, well, sure. And they're like, well, you did this and this and this. And I wasn't one of my finer moments. Uh, I said, well, who are you to tell me what I'm doing wrong? What are you talking about? You know, I'm, I'm, I've been here for two months. I know what I'm doing here. And, and, and I just fought back and I, and I pushed back. And, and I have to admit, that was not one of my, my, my greatest days at the state patrol. And I'm thankful that they were gracious with me and, and, and uh, had some more correction for me to understand how to receive correction. Um, but I, I made it through that. And it becomes just this example. See, last week, Last week, as we studied God's word, uh, we had a passage that, that just put a lot of fear inside of me. Just put the fear of God inside of me. Because in that passage, Jesus, he exhibited this, this, this anger, this righteous anger towards God's people who were living fruitless lives. And then he goes into the temple and he completely rearranges things. He starts throwing people out of the temple and he makes his point about the necessity of producing the fruit that God expects in our lives and not just producing religious observance. Now, see, I'm not sure about you, but this is why that passage puts the fear of God in me. Because in no way do I want to be a Christian who's producing a fruitless life. No way do I want to be on the receiving end of God's righteous anger because I've settled for pursuing religion, because I've settled for just being a religious person and having religious observances in my life without any fruit, without what God wants in our lives. And there puts this fear of God in me because I don't want to be on that receiving end. But so oftentimes what we do is instead of, instead of, opening our hearts, instead of believing the gospel, instead of allowing God to have control of our lives and our hearts, we just pursue religion. And we're so comfortable pursuing religion and showing up on Sunday and doing that and having that be it. But imagine with me for a second. Imagine with me that you are one of those religious leaders in the temple. You're there that day and you're doing what you've done every day for the last number of years. And here comes Jesus coming in and he takes everything you've been working on and he throws it upside down. He starts taking the tables and overturning the tables. He releases the animals. He starts kicking people out of the temple. Imagine if you're one of those religious leaders there that day. What is running through your mind as Jesus is doing all of this? If I'm there, I'm wondering, who is this guy? 
Who is this guy, Jesus? And, and who gives him the authority? Who gives him the right to come into the temple and begin to flip things upside down and to rearrange and to do this? Who gives him the, the right to do this? Ultimately, this question is the same question that you and I will ask ourselves time and time again in our lives. See, one application point that we didn't make last week that we could have was the Apostle Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, um, who was probably the greatest missionary who ever lived. He wrote in 1 Corinthians that our body is a temple. Our body is a temple. And if we're, uh, our body is a temple, then doesn't that mean that Jesus, if he had the right to, to rearrange that temple, doesn't he have the right to rearrange our lives? To orchestrate the way things operate in our lives? To dictate the fruit that we are to produce? You see, in our text today, we're going to be, if you have a Bible, we're going to be Mark chapter, uh, starting in 11, we'll finish in chapter 12. If you have a Bible, we're in Mark chapter 11. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got a uh, uh, usher who would love to come and bring one of these to you. This, in this text today, what I've titled the authority of Jesus, this is going to be the question that the Pharisees, the religious leaders are going to be looking at, is the authority of Jesus. What authority does Jesus have to come in and rearrange the temple? What authority does he have to come in and dictate what happens in our lives? And ultimately, this is a question that you and I need to be able to answer as well. Who is Jesus? Does he have the authority to come in and tell you and I what kind of fruit we should produce and the way that we should live? So we're going to be looking today at the authority of Jesus. Before we read, would you join me in prayer? God, I just want to thank you for who you are. I want to thank you for this opportunity. God, that we're going to be able to read your word and hear your word be taught. God, I'm not interested in just sharing my opinion because my opinion isn't that great. But God, you are. And I pray, God, that you would help us to embrace your word, to embrace the words that you have for us. God, I pray that as we hear your word being taught, God, I pray that our faith would be grown. I pray that we would put our trust in you. We would put our hope in you. And that, God, you would do a work in our hearts and our lives. That, God, we would not come here and leave the same, but that, God, you would continue to work on us, to change us, to make us more like you. God, we ask this in your name. Amen. So, in your Bible, we're in Mark chapter 11 and starting in verse 27. And it says, And they came again to Jerusalem. This is Jesus and his disciples. And he was walking to the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? See, the religious leaders come up to Jesus and say, Hey, who gave the authority to do these things? Now, these things refers to probably Jesus overturning the things in the temple and rearranging the temple, but also could refer to his entire ministry, everything that Jesus has done, all the miracles he's done, all the teachings, all the people he's healed, all these things. They say, Jesus, who gave you the authority to do all of these things? You see, the authority question was essentially a request for credentials. Who credentialed you? Who permitted you to do these things? See, most religious bodies in those days, as well as in our day, they have this, this process for you to, um, kind of a credential process for you to become ordained or you to be uh, commissioned to be a minister of the gospel. This is similar to the way we would do in, in medicine, in professions like medicine or in law. Before you can be a doctor, you actually have to go and prove that you have studied to be a doctor. 
I mean, can you imagine if there was no test for doctors to take? Can you imagine what kind of loonies we would have prescribing all sorts of things for people when they have ailments? Can you imagine? We could have fun imagining what would come of that. But there would, undoubtedly, there would have been some self-proclaimed, some self-accredited experts who would be just, they'd be a quack is what they would be. And so a credential system is not necessarily a bad thing even for religious leaders. Yet, this can also have a a dark side. This credentialing system can also have a dark side because what can happen is that credentialing system can be manipulated by a small number in order to control who is allowed to do certain things. And in fact, this is what the religious leaders of the day had done. When they questioned Jesus about his authority, they were doing so because they wanted to be able to have the control to allow and to permit and to say, you, we know who you are. We know what you're going to teach. We are going to allow you to teach, but we aren't going to allow anybody else because we want to be able to control what instruction was given to the public. And so now they're looking at Jesus and saying, hey, we didn't credential you. We didn't give you permission to be doing these things. And so now we want to push against this authority that you don't have so that way we can begin to silence you. And so Jesus, this is how he responds to their question about whose authority he has. Jesus said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And he said, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they, the religious leaders, they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for all the people uh, held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See, Jesus throws them a little bit of a curveball. I'm not sure how many of you are good at hitting curveballs. I'm horrible at them. But he throws them a little bit of a curveball. And he, he, he asks them a question about the validity of John the Baptist's ministry. He said when John was baptizing people, when he was doing his ministry, was his ministry of God or was his ministry of man? Now, John the Baptist, we studied him in the very beginning of, of the Gospel of Mark. John was a dude who beat to his own beat of a drum. He was off on his own. He was a guy who dressed in camel hair for clothing. He ate grasshoppers and honey for meals. He was just a little bit different kind of a guy. And, and, and his message, it was so simple. It was so clear, but it was also so different than what the message of the Pharisees and the religious leaders The religious leader said, here's this long list and you have to keep this long list if you're going to be made right with God. And John's message was simple. John's message was repent, repent, turn from your sin and turn to God. This message didn't fit in with the message that the religious leaders were were, were teaching. And they, John the Baptist did not fit in to their religious credentials that they had set up. So this would have put John at odds with all of the religious leaders. He would have been in confrontations with them time and time again. But the thing is, the people loved John. The people knew there's something different about John. The people believed that John really was a prophet from God, even though he didn't have the credentials from the religious leaders. So these religious leaders here, they are completely stumped. Because if they say that John the Baptist's ministry was from God then they would essentially be endorsing Jesus' ministry. 
Because John the Baptist had baptized Jesus. John the Baptist had endorsed Jesus. And so if they were to say that John's ministry was from God, then that would be the same thing as saying Jesus' ministry was from God. However, the religious leaders couldn't say that that John's ministry They wouldn't say that John's ministry was from man because that would have created a riot with the other people. All the people, they would have had uh, to deal with the backlash of of turning against who who they believe to be a prophet of God. So the the religious leaders say, man, we don't have an answer. We don't know. And Jesus says, and I have no answer for you. I mean, if these religious leaders, if they couldn't even acknowledge the Holy Spirit's work in the life of John and in John's ministry, and the authority of God in John's life, then there's no way that they're going to understand and respect the authority of God in Jesus' life as well. So Jesus here, he kind of refuses to answer the question by whose authority. But what he does is right beginning in chapter 12, he continues the story and he tells them a parable that is going to explain further the authority of Jesus and where it came from. So in chapter 12, there's a parable that starts out, and this is what it says. And it says, And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. And he says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. And when the season came, he sent uh, a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them away to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. And he still had another one other, a beloved son. Finally, the landowner sent his beloved son, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This parable is pretty straightforward. There's a landowner who owns a vineyard, and he does what any other good landowner and vineyard owner is going to do. He builds, he builds a wall to define his property and to provide some protection. And he builds, he builds a tower. The tower is for storage, as well as there's a lookout so they can look out over the entire vineyard. Um, he builds, he builds vats. He builds this, this wine press where the, the grapes can be, uh, uh, separated the juice from, from, from the fruit. And then you can take the fruit and you turn that into wine. I mean, it's a wine press. That's the purpose of it. So the landowner goes and he lives in a different area. So he hires tenants to take care of the vineyard. Now, typically in this relationship, the landowner would say, I'm going to allow you to, to run the vineyard and I'm going to come back and probably take a third of the wine. I'll take a third of the wine. The rest of it is yours to keep. However, when the landowner sends his servants to collect his benefit from the vineyards, uh, the tenants reject those servants. Some of the servants they beat, some of them they even kill. So after a period of time, the landowner sends his beloved son, thinking the tenants, man, they're going to respect and, 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 and understand the authority that my son has. But instead, these tenant farmers, they became even more hostile and deadly toward that son than they were to the messengers. And they take that son out of the vineyard and they kill him. So the question is, why would Jesus He's dealing with authority. Why would Jesus tell this parable about a vineyard and this vineyard owner and these different things? 
You see, the religious leaders, they should have been well-versed in reading the Bible. They should have been well-versed in the Old Testament. And if they were, they would have known. They would have known when they heard this story that Israel is often likened to uh, the Israel, the people of God, were often likened to a vineyard. Passages like Isaiah chapter 5 and Psalm chapter 80 uh, teach this idea that the people of God are likened to a vineyard. So theoretically, the religious leaders would have realized, hey, Jesus is talking about Israel here. And if you go further in this parable, the landowner, this represents God. And the vineyard, it represents God's people. And just as the landowner hired tenants to keep watch over the vineyard, God has religious leaders and shepherds in place who are supposed to watch over the people of God. But when the landowner, or God, when he sends his servants, or in this case, this becomes the prophets of God, when he sends the prophets to come and check on the vineyards, what do the, what do the religious leaders do? They rejected the prophets. They beat the prophets. And there are some prophets they even killed. So finally, the landowner says, I've got to do something here because they're not, they're not, they're not listening. And God says, hey, the people of God, the religious leaders, they're not listening to the prophets. So God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my beloved son. This word beloved is important. Because this isn't just any son that God is sending and the landowner is sending. This is his beloved son. In fact, this word beloved son is only used twice throughout the gospel and throughout the entire gospel of Mark. The first time it's used is in Mark chapter 1, after the baptism of Jesus, when Jesus said, this is my beloved son. When God said, this is my beloved son. And the second time this term is used is in Mark chapter 9, after the transfiguration of Jesus, when God said, this is my beloved son. Jesus is leaving no doubt in anybody's mind as to who he is. Jesus is claiming that he is the son of God, the beloved son of God. Of God. And he's saying, This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. And Jesus concludes his parable by quoting from Psalm chapter 18, highlighting the necessity of Jesus being rejected. He says in verse 9, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. (laughs) Yeah. So they left him and went away. See, Jesus turns from a metaphor about a vineyard and says, now let's change this to a metaphor about uh, Israel as a building. And the religious leaders are no longer the, uh, no longer the, uh, the, the tenant farmers, but now the religious leaders are the builders. It is their job to build the people of God. But Jesus is very clear that they have rejected the cornerstone. They have rejected the cornerstone, which is Jesus. Now, this cornerstone w- would have been the very first stone that would have been laid when you're building a building. And its dimensions had to be exactly perfect because if it wasn't, then you would have, you'd have walls that would be leaning, walls that wouldn't be straight. And you have all sorts of issues if you've got walls that aren't straight. I mean, anybody who's lived in a house, you don't want walls that are falling down. And so this cornerstone was the most significant one. It had to be just perfect because otherwise the entire building would be susceptible. And so Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone that's been rejected. And 
while I'm the cornerstone that's been rejected, this is foundational. I am the foundational piece. I mean, this is a restatement of what Jesus has said again. That he predicts that he will be killed and he will be rejected and be thrown out by the religious leaders. This is something that Jesus has talked about again and again through the gospel of Mark. He says, I'm going to be, I'm going to win. I'm going to give victory to you by losing. I'm going to lose my life so that way you can live. So Jesus has taught us again and again that his rejection, his suffering, his sacrifice is actually a marvelous triumph. In his rejection, in his death, in his sacrifice, he took our penalty for sin, making salvation and eternity in heaven possible for those who surrender their lives in a relationship with him. The cross, which would appear as a defeat, is actually the most important part of our faith. It is the cornerstone that everything else depends on. People say, well, what is the, what is the most important thing about the Christianity? What is the most important thing about what you believe? It's the gospel. It is the cornerstone on everything else we believe. It's built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, pastor, why do you preach the gospel every single week? This is exactly why. Because it is our cornerstone. It is what everything else in our, in our faith is built upon. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that we can't be good enough, but he was good enough in our place. And if we come into a relationship with him, that is how we are made right. Everything in our faith is based on that idea of the gospel. So Jesus says the cornerstone is going to be rejected. He said, but it is the most foundational piece in the entire faith. So let's come back for a second. Let's come back to the question that we were dealing with today. Is the authority of Jesus, what authority does Jesus has? Does Jesus have? I mean, they're religious leaders. This is what they're concerned about. They're concerned about how come Jesus can come into the temple and rearrange things. And how come Jesus can dictate what kind of fruit we should have in our lives. And so this parable of the tenants is a roundabout way uh, for Jesus to say that the, his authority came from God. This is a roundabout way for Jesus to say, my authority came from God. He says, I am the beloved son. I'm the beloved son sent by God, the father. And the reason that he could go into the temple, the reason that Jesus could throw tables over and kick people out was because it was his temple because he is the son of God. There's little Doubt to the authority of Jesus. He is God's beloved son. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And verse 12 says that as soon as the religious leaders understood what Jesus had just said, as soon as they understood that Jesus said his authority came from God, the religious leaders became upset. And at that moment, they looked at Jesus and they made the decision to get rid of him. They said, we want to get him arrested and thrown out. Now I have to think though, I have to think about these religious leaders. You know, they've, 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 they've seen the power of Jesus displayed time and time again. They've seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles. They've, they've seen Jesus do all sorts of things to sh- prove and to show his divinity, to show who he is, to show that he is the son of God. And I just have to wonder at this point. I'm not really sure for these religious leaders, I'm not really sure that their issue was really the authority of Jesus. I'm not really sure if that becomes their issue. Because I think the religious leaders like you and I, like most people in our day, I think most people understand Jesus' authority comes from God. So I don't think our issue is 
whether or not Jesus is where Jesus's authority comes from. I think the issue that the religious leaders were dealing with, and I think the issue that you and I deal with on a very regular basis is not where does Jesus' authority comes from, but whether or not we will submit and accept that authority. See, I think we all understand who Jesus is. We understand Jesus is God's son. He is God, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. God come down to be with us. I mean, I think most people get that. Theoretically. But the hard thing is to actually believe that in your life and put that into practice. Because if we believe that, if we acknowledge that, then that means that he is God and we are not. And if he is God, then he has ultimate authority and we do not. See, for these religious leaders, if they admitted that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the Son of the living God, if they admitted that about him, then that would mean that Jesus had the ultimate authority, that Jesus was the ultimate authority, and that they would have to submit to him, which means that they would lose power over their lives, that they would lose control, that they would lose their own influence. You see, the issue here is when you acknowledge who Jesus is, you begin to lose control because he is God and you are not. When you acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior, that his authority comes from God, you begin to lose control over your life because you understand I submit to him. He is God and I am not. So rather than submitting to his authority and to his power, which would result in losing their own power and their own control, the religious leaders decide we're going to kill him. We're going to see him killed. We're going to be done with this Jesus altogether. See, you and I, I think our struggle is probably the same. See, again, I think most of us understand who Jesus is. But I think the hard thing is we don't want to submit to that. We don't want to think that there's somebody out there who has authority over my life. See, chances are we're going to be tasked with hard things if we follow God. And sometimes those hard things are things we don't want to do. See, the danger of recognizing Jesus' authority as the Son of God is at some point, at some point, the way that Jesus tells us to live, the way that Jesus expects us to live, is going to rub against how you and I think life should be lived. We have our ideas. This is the way we want to live our lives. This is what we want to pursue. And at some point, we're going to find that what God expects of us rubs against the way that we want to live. At some point, there will be this difference. And if we recognize Jesus for who he is, then that means that we acknowledge he has the final say. He is the top dog. He makes the final say, not me. So, for example, this is how this plays out. How do you handle when somebody wrongs you? How do you handle when somebody hurts you? When somebody violates you? I'll tell you what. You know what my, 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 my heart wants to tell me to do? My heart tells me to seek revenge. My, my flesh says, I want to get even, or I want to try and validate myself and make myself look like I am in the right. Sometimes if I try and be really good, maybe I just try and cut myself off from that person so they can't hurt me again. I mean, this is what we do when we've been wronged. But if we submit to Jesus, if we look at God's word, then we have to listen to him and, and listen to his word that says to turn the other cheek. That we have to listen to his word that says, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Do you know how hard that is? Do you know how difficult that is for us to actually do? 
that takes all of the control out of our hands. We have no control. It puts it all in God's hands. So the question is, will we submit to God and his authority? Husbands and wives. I tell you, marriage can be the the, the greatest relationship ever. And marriage can also be the most difficult relationship ever. And we kind of go through these patterns where things are good sometimes and things are hard sometimes. And I begin to wonder, you know, when you're a spouse and your spouse is, 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 is not doing things that you think they should be doing. They're not loving you the way you think they should. They're not behaving in the way that you think they're supposed to do. What is our natural response? Well, fine, I'm just going to start pulling back. You aren't going to do what you're supposed to do. I'm not going to do what I'm supposed to do too. And then you become bitter and, and, and angry. But again... That's what we want to do. But what does God's word actually say to do? It says we make the first step. Men, especially. We love our wives like Christ loved the church. And there are times when the church, we, the people of God, we are the church. We turn our back on Jesus time and time and time again. And this is how he calls us to love our spouses. When they wrong us, we pursue them. We forgive them. We be faithful to them, even if they've been faith unfaithful to us. This is what we're supposed to, how we're supposed to live as husbands, as wives. I think about you teenagers. Sometimes teenagers, you think your parents are so out of touch with reality. You think they're just concerned over trivial things. And teenagers, it's easy for you to want to ignore your parents and say they're outdated. I'm not going to listen to them. But again... We talk about the authority of Jesus. His word says to honor your father and mother, to give them respect, to love and to cherish them. Man, I get it. Your parents, most of them are outdated. They're they're not hip. They, they They don't have any class. But the thing is, you have a responsibility. If you're going to submit to and understand who Jesus is, to honor them, to respect them. Man, I get this. This is hard. Because the way that Jesus wants us to live, what God's word says, often flies in the face of with what we want to do. The way that we want to live. It's hard to submit to the authority of Jesus, to submit to his word. This is why, this is why we're called to live by faith. Faith means that we begin to give up control. We begin to trust God. That's what faith is. It means that we trust that God will work things out for his glory and his love for us. It means when we come into these areas where we have that rub between the way that I want to live and the way that God says to live, that I, by faith, choose his way. And I trust that he will make things work out for for good, for his glory and for my good. I can't promise you. I can't promise you that if you do it God's way, that whoever wronged you won't do it again. I can't promise you that if you do it God's way, that you will have a a perfect marriage or a perfect spouse. Kids, teens, I can't promise you that your parents won't still be old and out of style as you continue to submit to them. But I can tell you this. We have the completed word of God in our hands. We have 2,000 years of testimony of people who have lived by faith and done things God's way. And I'll tell you what, I've, I've met with lots of people who have regretted and suffered because they didn't submit to the authority of God in their life. 
But to this day, I have not met one person. I've not met one person who regretted living a life of faith and submission to Jesus and to God's word. That should be the testimony for us. That should be the testimony for you. That I don't understand and I get it's hard, but I'm going to be in submission to the authority of Jesus because he is the beloved son, because he is Emmanuel, God with us. So let's be absolutely clear here this morning. When you make the decision to follow Jesus, he calls us to a lot more than just Sunday morning worship attendance. When he calls us to himself, he's calling us to hand over the reins of our lives and to surrender to his authority and to surrender our power and our control of our lives to him, to allow him to move, to change. There's one more little section in our passage today that talks, uh, that ties into the authority that I want to look at this morning. Chapter 12, verse, uh, starting in verse 13. And it says, and they sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anybody's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. See, these, these questions that the religious leaders are asking Jesus right here, they're, they're tied into the parable of the tenants that we just read. They're tied into the Pharisees asking about the authority of Jesus. See, these religious leaders, they came to Jesus, and again, they're trying to trick him into an answer that will discredit him. They hoped that they would be able to force Jesus to, to, to say either the poll tax was an illegitimate one, and they didn't have to pay taxes to Caesar, or they would, uh, or they would get Jesus to uh, say that it was just and it was legitimate and it should be paid. See, on the one hand, if Jesus said, no, you don't have to pay that tax, that's to Caesar, you don't have to pay that a tax, then... Um, then he would be claiming that Rome had no authority. If he said, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, he'd be saying Rome has no authority, and that would lead to a conflict between Jesus and the Roman government. On the other hand, if Jesus supported the tax and said, you need to pay your taxes, then uh, he would have been admitting uh, Rome, Rome's authority over the Jews, and he would have been extremely unpopular with the people. But Jesus, as he often does, you just love how he responds profound. He says, first, he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He's making a very significant and simple point here. He's saying the usage of Caesar's uh, uh, image on that coin reflects his authority. His picture is on that coin because it was his precious metal that was turned into that coin in the first place. It was also his wealth by which the roads were built, by education, by the military protection were provided. And all these things were Caesar's. And so, Jesus saying, hey, you benefit from those things. You benefit from driving on Caesar's roads. Surrender to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give him his due. This is an acknowledgement of a limited uh, but real authority for civil government. And as difficult and as hard as some politicians can be, Scripture says that even the most wicked king or governor owes his position 
because of God. He's put in that position because God has placed him there. But secondly, first he says, render to things, uh, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But secondly, he says, and to God the things that are God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God. This is a profound point. In those days, oftentimes it held this view that whoever was the head of the government, whether it was the king or the president, that his word was essentially the word of God. And if, and if the king spoke, you did whatever the king said, and there's no, there's no questioning that authority. And Jesus here, he refutes that idea. He says, yes, pay Caesar taxes, but no, don't give Caesar worship. He says the, the state has authority, but it is limited in certain spheres. Jesus is saying as Christians, as Christians, we are to respect authority. We're not to be anarchists or political radicals. Yet Christians are also to be critical of authority, understanding that there is only one ultimate authority, and that is God himself. Human authority is always relative because it is only over limited aspects of our lives. And it is never absolute because it's always conditioned by God's law. And so if a human authority uses his power to break God's law or coerce us to break God's law, then Peter in Acts chapter 4 says we must obey God rather than men. So let me just cut to the chase. And I'm going to let's talk about gay marriage for a minute. Let's talk about gay marriage few weeks ago, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States legalized gay marriage all across our nation. And it's been interesting. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but it's been interesting for me to look at my Facebook feed in the past couple of weeks and see the different responses of how people are responding to what the Supreme Court has said. There are some people that I've noticed, they were completely outraged that our country would legalize same-sex marriage, that they would permit same-sex marriage. And I, and I sit and I wonder, why are we so surprised? Why are we so, so we live in a post-Christian nation. Our country absolutely was founded on Christian principles, but we've been moving away from those for a very long time. We are in the world. And, 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 and where's the second Corinthians that talks about Satan being the ruler of this world. So why would we expect anything different? I mean, if, if, if we had all Christian rules, that would mean everybody would be a Christian. And that means our job would be completed. We've gone and reached everybody in the country and everybody's a Christian. I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what we've accomplished yet. I think we have our work left to do. So we shouldn't be surprised that non-Christians live non-Christian lives. This is where God calls us to be in the world. And this is the world that we live in, a fallen, sinful world, but not of the world. So we shouldn't be surprised that the world around us doesn't embrace the way that God says to live. That shouldn't surprise us. We should realize that is the world that we live in. Another, another response I saw, some Christians responded with hate. Some Christians had horrible things to say about what's happened. And I tell you what, that response makes me mad. That response rages this righteous anger within the side of me. That's not a biblical response to, to cast off everybody who says they're homosexual, to cast off gays. We are supposed to love the lost and the hurting people around us. We as Christians are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. 
the hands and feet of love, not the hands and feet of judgment. We're called to, to love people. I tell you, I'm not going to unfriend a gay person. And, and in fact, if, if somebody comes into our church and they're pursuing God, they're inquiring, trying to understand who God is, and they say they're gay, I'm going to welcome them here because I want them to come in here just as much as I would want an alcoholic or a porn addict or a glutton or a gossip. I want them to come in and hear and, and embrace the life-changing and eternity-changing gospel of Jesus Christ and be freed from whatever it is that holds them captive. That is the message that we should be sharing with people as we want them to come in to hear the gospel so they can be changed. Not hold them out because they're different than us because they don't embrace as a non-believer what we believe to be the way to live Some christians they responded in celebration They said this is awesome People have bought into this idea of equality It's all about equality equal for everybody As a christian, it's not about equality As a christian, it's about authority Whose authority will you submit to? Because I believe God's word is pretty clear on homosexuality. I'm not sure how you can come up with any other answer than God forbids homosexuality. And while the Supreme Court, it can do many things, it can legalize gay marriage across the country, there's something the Supreme Court can't do. And that's put Jesus Christ back in the grave. So as a church, as a church and as Christians, how, how, how do we respond to this idea of gay marriage? We stand against gay marriage. But we don't stand against gays because those are people who need to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. That means we need to love them. We need to befriend them so they can come and understand who Jesus is and come into a relationship with him. <laughs> so as we conclude this message, I don't know if this is what you were looking for today. I don't want to get into a debate. I want to speak God's word clearly because I think that we have a responsibility we shouldn't be surprised in the world that we live in. This should tell us we have work to do. We have people that we need to love in the name of Jesus so they can come into a relationship with him. And so their lives and their eternity can be changed forever. Jesus uses this passage to teach us about his absolute and unconditional authority. He shows, that, uh, he shows us that all of the other authority, even the Supreme Court, is conditioned by his will. So this means that the lordship of Jesus is complete and over every aspect of our lives. Every aspect of our lives should be in submission to the authority of Jesus, both public and private, in work and in play, in thought life and behavior, in our intellect and our feelings, in our material possessions and our spiritual capacities. Everything in our life should be in submission to God, to Jesus and his authority. Everything in our lives. And so as we prepare now to respond to God's word, I'd encourage you, I'd encourage you to spend some time saying, God, would you show me the areas that I'm living in my own authority? Would you show me the areas that I'm not living in submission to you? Would you show me the areas that I have said, I'm not going to allow you to be the authority in this part of my life. I'm going to be my own authority. Would you pray that God would show those things to you? And as you see that area, as you know the area, would you be bold and by faith, by faith, come and ask Jesus to give you the ability to live his way, to live 
in the authority of him. Let's pray. God, I know my own heart. I know my heart tries to push back to, to, to hold that control, to hold that authority, to hold that power for myself. God, I know that's my heart. And I don't think I'm the only one. There are many of us in here who want to hold on to the control of our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to embrace you. I pray that you help us to embrace your authority. That as you are God and we are not, that means that we should live in submission to you, even in hard things, even in things that rub against us deeply. We come to you by faith and say, God, this is hard, but I'm submitting myself to you. God, I know that there are those in here today who are living and having a hard time living in submission. God, I pray that they would know how good you are and how much you love them. That they would know how valuable you are to them. And they will know that, that you would never do anything to hurt them, but you want the best for them. God, I pray for the faith today to submit to you, to say, God, I choose to follow you. God, I pray that today there would be spiritual victories in this room and in our lives. I pray that there would be areas that we submit to you. God, we pray for our country. God, I pray that we would look at the decision that was made a few weeks ago and we realize we have a job to do. There are people we need to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would take that, take that to heart. That our response to this sort of thing is to love people, not become secluded. That we'd love people in the name of Jesus so their lives would be transformed by the power of the gospel. Because there is no other power that will change people's lives. God, I pray for your spirit to rest on us now. God, I pray if there are any of those in here today who are struggling with authority in their lives. God, I pray as we have this opportunity to respond to your word through worship, I pray that they would just come forward during these next couple of songs and say, hey, pastor, pastor, would you pray for me? Pastor, would you pray for my faith? Would you pray that I would grow in my faith? That I'd be able to submit these areas to, you, to God. God, that's my desire for every one of us in here today. God, that's my desire for myself. God, I thank you that you are good. That you are worthy. And that when we do submit to you, that life will be better than we could ever imagine. Jesus, I love you and I praise you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.